Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Centre. Joining me today is Tarek Thatchell, an Associate Professor of Political Science at Vanderbilt University. His current research focuses on the political consequences of urbanization and draws on extensive qualitative and quantitative research among poor migrants in Indian cities. An article from this project, co-authored with Adam Auerbach, uh, received the 2018 Heinz I. Ulau Award for the best article published in the American Political Science Review in the previous year. So welcome, Tarek. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Irina. Uh, I wanted to start off with your current book, pro- book project with Adam. Uh, you've been doing a lot of extensive ethnographic and quantitative research on the politics of Indian slums. As a political scientist, what prompted you to get interested in this topic? Uh, it's a great question. I think, you know, both Adam and I have been interested in um, urban and specifically urban poor spaces, um, usually just by witnessing and visiting Indian cities um, and seeing the changes that are happening within them. And it's hard to visit um, not just, you know, big cities like Delhi and Bombay, but um, medium and even small Indian cities um, and not witness uh, the tremendous amount of proliferation of, uh, of new settlements, often settled by recent migrants from the countryside. And I think that's really what motivated us, was seeing this change demographically happening in Indian cities and wanting to understand a little bit about, you know, to what extent are these new spaces being um, incorporated into city politics? Um, are they being incorporated? And if so, how? Um, and trying to understand those questions is really what took us to this research. You talk a lot about machine politics mm-hmm. in India, and that's a core element of your book. Um, historically, when we think about machine politics, um, even you mentioned in your book, the, the big examples are um, U.S. Democratic Party machines in New York and Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, they emerged in the 19th century. They, they gave out material benefits to poor European immigrants mm-hmm. um, in exchange for political support. And we're obviously seeing similar trends happening across the developing world. Masses of migrants are flooding to cities, Mm -hmm. living in slums, and sometimes end up being governed by these big, powerful political machines. Mm -hmm. But you argue that politics emerges somewhat differently within Indian slums. Now, I'm not really sure if Mm -hmm. I can use the word democratic per Mm -hmm. se, but Mm -hmm. um, you're noticing that the process is maybe a little bit more democratic than Mm -hmm. one would expect. Mm -hmm. So what have you been observing? Mm -hmm. What's counterintuitive? Yeah, so I think, you know, to to begin with just kind of situating, you know, what is this language of a political machine? Um, And as some of your listeners may know, you know, the political machine is a kind of political party organization um, that has been often understood to really take root uh, among urban poor neighborhoods and specifically among urban poor migrant communities. So when we talk about the Democratic Party machine um, in cities like Chicago or the Republican Party machine in cities like Philadelphia, um, often the, the soil in which those organizations took root uh, was you know, enclaves of transnational immigrants. And if we think about where they were kind of making their biggest mark, it was within those immigrant communities um, at time, at periods of urban growth um, in this country's history, in the U.S.'s history, I should say. And what interested us was seeing, is there a similar uh, kind of political party organization that is emerging within Indian cities? Because many of our models of Indian politics has really been rooted in studies of the countryside, and rightfully so, that's where the majority of Indians still live. Um, but 
But uh, the first uh, decade of the 21st century was also the first in which India added more people to its cities than to its countryside in absolute numbers. Mm -hmm. And so it is relevant to begin asking uh, what uh, does an urban politics in India look like and an emergent urban politics in India look like. And one of the things that we saw was that parties in Indian cities are really looking to extend themselves into these newly settled migrant Mm -hmm enclaves, mm-hmm. um, except the migrants now are not transnational immigrants, but internal migrants from the countryside. And one of the things that struck us that was uh, really important to understand is, so why are they doing this? Mm-hmm. And much like they did in American cities, they realized the electoral potential of these communities. Mm-hmm. So um, migrant communities and migrant slum settlements in which Adam and I work turn out to vote at incredibly high rates. So something that might automatically strike you as, uh, as perhaps surprising is far from being disenfranchised, over 90% of them have registered to vote in the city. And turnout rates among those who are eligible to vote is also in excess of 90%, which is far higher than average turnout rates, uh, which are some 25 to 30 percentage points lower um, in other parts of the city. So not just our migrants coming to the city, they're registering to vote mm-hmm. and they're voting a lot. And in India, the parlance that's often used for them are the, these communities are called vote banks. They're literally banks of votes that are there for mm-hmm. politicians to harness. And so the question becomes, how do they do so? And they do, th- do so through these machine-like organizations, which are these hierarchical organizational structures that link political elites in the city all the way down into migrant slums. And what Adam and I are trying to do in our book is trace out how do these organizations actually form? How do they take root? Given that most of these migrant settlements were vacant land that have been settled, had very little in them, uh, let alone, you know, they were mostly made out of kind of ramshackle tents, um, uh, semi-permanent construction, no real political authority figures existed within them. So this is very different from, say, village India. And so who emerges as political authority figures within the slum settlement to connect these communities, these vote-rich communities, to the powers of the centers of urban politics? That's what we were looking at. Mm-hmm. And the po- final point that you referenced is that we found that the way in which these local political authority figures, local slum leaders, slum brokers emerge is much more a kind of competitive bottom-up process than we imagined. So Mm -hmm. I think the typical Mm -hmm. image many people have of Indian slums, many of your listeners might have, is that they're kind of ruled by these thuggish mafia bosses, the kind of what we jokingly call the slumdog millionaire version of Indian politics. There's some big bad boss who keeps these um, kind of passive voters under his control, these poor migrants under, under his sway, maybe at the barrel of a gun. And we found very little evidence that such kingpins are the connective tissue between slums and the Mm -hmm. city. Um, Instead, we found that there are lots of slum leaders within Indian settlements, but it's a very competitive landscape. So on average, our settlements, we worked in 110 settlements across two cities. We found on average six to nine settlement leaders who are competing for political authority within the settlement. And the way in which they come up is really that they are actively chosen and selected by residents, um, often just in the kind of everyday decisions that residents make and whom to seek help from and follow, mm-hmm. but also sometimes in kind of big discrete moments, things like informal elections that Adam and I observed in these settlements where residents actually come together and have community meetings, sometimes informal elections complete with paper ballots where they actually cast lots for who should become uh, the Basti Adhyaksh, the president of the settlement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those processes we thought were counterintuitive because they suggested a degree of bottom-up agency um, and competition 
uh, that really goes against not just popular understandings, Bollywoodized understandings of slums, but of machine politics, which often assumes there's Tammany Hall or Boss Tweed, who has this very uh, top-down coercive apparatus that really squelches competition and mm. really controls localities. And we found that, that that was simply not the case in Indian cities, that mm-hmm. even among poor, vulnerable migrants, there is this competition and choice. That's really interesting because it really does um, have a lot to do with with this kind of unique competitive environment. Now, why mm-hmm. is it so competitive? Why is nobody capable mm-hmm. of taking over mm-hmm. and uh, becoming a boss in, in some of these Indian slums? So I think there are a couple of different reasons at different levels. So at the very ground level, there are certain forces that allow for competition. One is, as I said before, there's no settled hierarchy because within the settlement, because these are settlements in which everybody is a poor migrant. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that there aren't these traditional hierarchies that allow sometimes for a monopoly of, of control. Um, so every single slum leader that we found was somebody who was a first generation migrant. Uh, almost none of them had formal sector jobs. Um, they on average had the same level of income as other residents. So these are not people who are locally powerful other than through their entrepreneurial sweat that uh, brought them into brokerage. So that allows for a certain amount of horizontal competition because there isn't somebody who's starting out with a massive head start. Mm. This is unlike the formal world of Indian politics where you have to have lots of access to money, political connections, um, and often dynastic ties Mm. in order to be a credible candidate. Mm. But we find at this lower level, that's not the case. And that allows for a certain amount of competition. Mm. Um, The second thing is that I think Indian cities are politically very competitive at the top as well. So it's not um, uncommon for there to be uh, a lack of incumbent advantage in Indian politics, and that extends to the cities that we studied. So for long stretches that we were studying, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the current ruling party, was in government. Um, But in our study cities, that turned over. The Indian National Congress has actually been in power at different levels, the municipal level, the state level. And so the fact that at different degrees, at different periods of time, we've had incumbent turnover and competition at the top intersects with uh, the the kind of relatively horizontal nature of political Mm -hmm. competition within slums to create quite a competitive environment. Mm Um, And so some of this is a hallmark of Indian politics, Mm -hmm. and then some of it is really a hallmark of Indian slums Mm -hmm. that produces this competition. Interesting. You have a kind of egalitarian environment. um, Within the settlement. You know, obviously they're existing in extremely inegalitarian cities, and by no means do we mean to romanticize Indian cities. Mm -hmm. In fact, slums are living testament to the inequalities within the cities. But within settlements, what Mm -hmm. we found Mm -hmm. uh, was really a lack of uh, control by one or two social groups. So those could be caste groups or religious groups, or uh, one or two pivotal figures uh, because of relative privilege or advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that we found uh, just related to this question is that, you know, you would imagine that perhaps parties can plant people that they want to become a slum leader. That never happens. So we actually uh, surveyed 629 slum leaders and we took narrative histories from them as well as residents in their settlement. And almost uh, in, uh, I would say, over 95% of the cases, the slum leader was somebody who started out as a resident of the slum. And the first step was for them to actually gain political authority in the settlement on the basis of which they were connected to political parties. Mm -hmm. Parties can't just uh, put in a preferred cousin or nephew into the slum because they lack local legitimacy. Mm -hmm. They have no popularity, mm-hmm. uh, no namchin, no no kind mm-hmm. of what the, the Hindi word for kind of uh, social influence and recognition. And because of that, uh, parties really have to do business with those that the slum residents are throwing up as their leaders. Mm-hmm. They can't reverse engineer that. Mm-hmm. And I think that also puts a, a, a limit to monopolistic control within mm-hmm. the settlement. What criteria are residents in the slums really using to choose their leaders? So I think this is a really important question 
both for scholars of political science and urban politics, but also scholars of India. So the term I'd use earlier, vote banks, um, which is an Indian term or a term that's used widely in India, is often deployed with the sense that there's a kind of automaticity of these votes, that if you uh, can, you can collect all of these votes and usually do so just by distributing, um, you know, cheap liquor and food around elections. And we certainly see plenty of that in slums with parties trying to distribute handouts during mm-hmm. elections. Mm-hmm. And that dovetails with uh, literature on vote buying and comparative politics that assumes that these strategies can be very effective, especially among the poor, because given that the poor have very little access and yeah. very little um, leverage for making greater demands um, in terms of public policy policies um, or greater kinds of uh, services from the state, mm-hmm. they're willing to be bought mm-hmm. um, by a relatively cheap gift around an election. And I think uh, we join, I think, a, a number of scholars now who sit, are pushing back against that and saying that that's a very simplistic view. More often what we see, and there are other scholars who've, who've made this point, that more often what we see is Indian uh, politicians do these things around elections, more as skin in the game, more to show that they're credible than with any hope that that cheap food and liquor around an election is actually inducing the vote. And we heard this from politicians themselves. Mm -hmm. We heard this from slum leaders. Slum leaders on average that we surveyed said they thought less than 5% of uh, residents within the settlement actually had their vote influenced by gifts around the election. Mm -hmm. So I think we feel quite confident that, and that accorded with everything that we observed over Mm -hmm. the many, many months of our ethnographic work as well, that really uh, goodwill and connections are bought between the vote, are forged between the vote, I should say, not bought during the vote. And I think the thing that residents really care about is everyday problem solving. So residents don't care about, do I get a little bit of cash once every five years? What they care about was, did you help me get my voter ID card? Did you help me get my ration card for subsidized food grain? Did you help get a petition for a street light in front of my house or uh, sanitation access to uh, pipe drinking water? And those are the kinds of things that brokers can really make their name for. And did you actually uh, respond to resident requests? And the brokers we spoke to receive a deluge of requests mm-hmm. um, from slum residents. And in fact, some of the hardest decisions they have to make is who to help and who to prioritize helping. Uh, But often what uh, they do and how they respond and how effective they are in responding is the key to their popularity and therefore their influence at the vote. So it's really in our sense, in our understanding, goodwill generated by problem solving rather than a kind of transactional uh, vote buying uh, Mm -hmm. that applies within the Indian Mm -hmm. settlement. So slum residents, kind of the picture you're painting is they're actually a lot more Um, perhaps empowered to choose among different kinds of brokers. They evaluate them on their effectiveness and Mm -hmm. problem solving. They're not just passive. They're not Mm -hmm. manipulated. Mm -hmm. They're not just rule takers. Mm -hmm. Um, How much power do they really have over their brokers or Mm -hmm. the local politicians? Um, Can they really hold these brokers accountable in ways that would mimic what would happen under a formal democratic institution? So yes and no. And I think it's, you know, I think let me start with the where where is there accountability here, and then maybe I can talk a little bit about where I think the limits to that are. So I think um, where we're often pushing back is against a model in which these are people who are literally in the language of clientelism clients. They are passive targets who are who are kind of trapped within this system, and I think where we push back on that is saying 
they can actually shape the machines that govern them. You know, poor Indian slum residents can at least shape the local nodes of brokerage, which are their interface with the larger world of city politics. And they can do that by selecting through both informal elections and everyday decisions. And there's also the converse of that. If somebody starts uh, being ineffective or a reputa- gets a reputation for not actually getting things done, because there's so much competition in the slum, residents can choose to seek help from and follow a different leader. And we see that quite often. So in the slums that we've worked in now, and I've worked in them for the past five years, Adam has worked in them for nearly the past decade, we've seen slum leaders rise and fall. So we've seen some slum leaders who came up and then there's a new crop of slum leaders who have displaced them because they've got a reputation for being more effective. Um, Often the model will be somebody who's more educated, a younger slum leader comes up who's more educated, maybe has uh, better knowledge of uh, modern technologies uh, and ways of getting things done online. And that can often be very valuable for the kinds of problem solving assistance that residents seek. Somebody like that could displace an older leader and this doesn't have to be, you know, um, again, this is not an image of some kind of uh, war between kingpins. It's really a much more gradual process of fewer and fewer people come to the person who's not proving effective and more and more people are going to another leader. And so that is the way in which I do think there's control. We saw very little evidence that residents were ever coerced into sticking with a leader that they were finding ineffective. Residents openly told us that they stopped going to one leader, that they would approach one leader and then another leader if they found that they were not being helpful. And so we we got very little impression of any kind of coercion to stick mm-hmm. with a particular broker. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there is genuine accountability that almost mimics a, a, a democratic system uh, or a formal institutional system. But having said that, I think we should be cautious about overly romanticizing this system to the degree that there's clearly limits on what this um, ecosystem has been able to achieve for slum residents. So I think, um, and Adam shows this beautifully in his first book, Um, There has been transformations within these settlements. Again, these are settlements that set up with nothing. They set up on land that was often left vacant because it was under dispute from private parties or environmentally hazardous and unfit for human uh, habitation. And there was nothing on them. From those, they have now, many of those slums been able to graduate to places that have streetlights, sanitation, paved roads, and all of that is through this brokerage system. It's very little that's coming through formal channels. These are all informal settlements that don't actually have formal recourse to urban budgets. So a lot of this is happening through dent of this system. But on the flip side, there are things that they're not getting. Nobody could go to an Indian slum settlement today, uh, including the ones that we work in, in Jaipur and Bhopal, and say that these are these are spaces that are being well done by the, by the political system. So for example, I think the best example of this is the number one thing that most residents want when we ask them was a formal title to their land. And most slum residents, almost all of the slum residents we surveyed have not got those. They may get temporary leaseholds in some of the cities um, for particular periods of time, but almost none of these slums have been. In fact, I would say that of the ones that we study, none of them have been made permanent. Very few have been evicted. I would say less than 10% of our sample during the time that we've studied them, uh, but very few have become permanent. So what we really have is a picture where they're kind of in limbo, in between being turfed out um, and between actually having formalized titles. And so they can get public goods and services, but have they got wide-sweeping urban policies in their favor? No. Have they got the widespread titles that they seek? No. Um, and I think politicians have an incentive to kind of keep them in this limbo where they're you know, continually dependent on the politicians' favor to remain where they are um, and improve their lives at the margins which are very important for people who are living in poverty a street light a paved road a septic mm-hmm. tank can make a big difference uh, but I don't think we should romanticize this as um, uh, the kind of silver bullet that solved mm-hmm. the problem of inclusion mm-hmm. of urban poor mm-hmm. 
one of the more interesting findings uh, that you guys found was that actually when people are choosing their their slum leaders and brokers, um, they're not necessarily often using um, the basis of caste or ethnicity um, or kind of this similar ethnic background. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what actually really matters is things like education. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit more about that. Um, and are we seeing a kind of crowding out of old forms of, of choosing um, leaders based on kind of old forms of hierarchy? Yeah, th this has been one of the most interesting things that we've come across in our work. So I think another kind of stylized fact often um, about Indian politics is the preeminence of um, caste identities and the comparative politics literature often called ethnic identities. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we thought was very interesting, just demographically about our settlements, and this is a point I hope um, listeners will find interesting, is uh, that one of the really novel things about Indian slums is that they are incredibly diverse um, along caste lines. And so there is a, I think, at least in Jaipur and Bhopal, the cities I can speak of, there is a mischaracterization of Indian slums as mini villages. So many people think of them as just, you know, the countryside has literally been replicated in the city, which means all the forms of caste-based spatial segregation are simply replicated in the mm -hmm. city. We, and I say this quite categorically, for the cities that we work in, we just find no evidence of this. So we find evidence of not just incredible ethnic diversity, but that those ethnic communities are interspersed and integrated within a settlement. So it's not that there's one portion of the slum that goes for one ethnic group and one caste group and another portion of the slum, so that there's micro-segregation within a settlement. We find upper caste and lower caste living within the same alleyways. Uh, the modal um, biggest uh, caste in each of our settlements was only 5% of the slum. Um, and so the fractionalization index, for those of your listeners who know what that is, is 0.87, which means the odds of any two residents who are selected at random being from different castes is 87%. So these are very different, uh, diverse settlements. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. One is that what really unites the settlement is that everybody there is poor. Um, that's why they're there. So we have settlements that are a mixture of poor upper caste, poor lower caste, poor intermediate caste, mm -hmm. poor Hindus and poor Muslims. Mm -hmm. Most of our settlements have both Hindus and Muslims in them. Um, and this incredible diversity at a local level has implications for politics. So caste cannot form a basic building block that can be aggregated into winning coalitions, as it's often theorized to do in, in India and elsewhere. At a level in which caste is so diverse, even at a local level, even local slum brokers can't rise to positions of prominence by just mobilizing people from their caste background. That's a losing strategy. Mm -hmm. They have to craft multi-ethnic, multi-caste uh, uh, coalitions, even at a very local level. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, they have incentives to try and craft an appeal across different caste groups. Similarly, residents do not necessarily see the profit in assembling mechanically behind somebody from their caste group. And we see this in uh, the choice experiments that we run with residents, where residents express a far stronger preference for somebody who is likely to be an effective problem solver. So when we ask residents to choose between two hypothetical slum leaders, they always strongly prefer better educated leaders. And the effect of education is, is higher than the effect of coming from the same caste. 
um, which is positive, but not nearly as impactful. And we thought that, that was particularly interesting because when we replicated that experiment, but asked people to indicate their preferences for a neighbor, um, the results were inverted. So it's not when residents are asked, you know, who would you prefer as a neighbor? They still prefer people of their caste. So we're mm. not finding patterns that those kinds of social attitudes are necessarily going away when somebody comes to the city. But very quickly, somebody might retain a preference to live near people from their caste, but they no longer transfer that attitude towards their political choices. And we thought that was pretty instructive in a context in which, you know, aphorisms abound, such as when you cast your vote in India, you vote your caste. Well, at least for slum leaders um, within Indian settlements, we don't find that to be the case. I want to talk a little bit more about the brokers themselves. So mm-hmm. they're the intermediaries between the slum dwellers and the state. Um, you're finding interesting mechanisms that keep these brokers honest. Mm-hmm. So as these intermediaries, there's kind of always the concern that they will take state resources for themselves rather than distributing them back to the population, you find that they're not actually pocketing the resources. Mm -hmm. So what incentive do they have, to be honest? So it's, you know, what motivates brokers is a really important question. And I think, again, typically typically we've characterized what motivates them as the chance to kind of siphon off uh, petty resources from what parties give them. So party, the idea would be that if I'm a broker, I become a broker, the party gives me a bunch of money to distribute around the election again to buy votes. This is that vote buying model we talked about earlier. And I try and keep as much of it in my own pocket as possible and give as little as possible. Um, so I think that the first thing we're saying is that that's not the model. The model is this based on everyday problem solving. And it doesn't mean that they're not resources that brokers can get from those activities. So sometimes brokers will charge very low fees for helping with filing a petition. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, low given the people who they're catering to don't have the resources to pay. Uh, And often some of the petitions they do for larger services, things like streetlights and sewer lines, there's no fee involved. It's really just trying to get that good for the settlement. And, you know, it's not that if they do so, there's no uh, opportunity for them to get a small kickback from a constructor, uh, from a construction firm, etc., that may get the contract to build that road or put in that streetlight. But again, we found on average, that was not the main motivation of brokers. Now, this doesn't mean that they're altruists. This doesn't mean that they're selfless social workers. What instead motivates brokers is really the chance of a career in politics. So brokers are entering this system. People are becoming slum leaders, not to remain slum leaders, but in the hope that that can launch a a political career uh, where there may be more lucrative opportunities. So if you become a local elected candidate or if you rise to becoming a, a kind of district president for your party, then you can can actually have some of these more lucrative rent-seeking opportunities. And so what brokers get in is really they are hoping that by becoming a broker, they'll be offered a formal position in India called a PAD within a political party. And this was by far the biggest motivation when we asked brokers themselves, what do you want for doing this? What is the number one thing that you want? Well Well more than four in five of them said we want a formal party position. And this is not simply wishful thinking. When we tracked the organizational history of brokers, the 629 we surveyed, we found 415 of them had obtained a PUD. Moreover, uh, about half of those 415 had obtained multiple PUDs, and on average, those PUDs tended to follow an upward trajectory. So I had increasing positional rank as I go on through my career. In other words, there's a slippery slope, and it's a competitive game, but there is a political career that might be able to be launched by starting as a broker. 
And you might say, well, given that it's a slippery slope, why choose that as something to invest in? But you have to understand the choice set that most of these people who are poor migrants are facing in Indian cities. Very few of them, uh, far greater than 90% of them are informally employed. And so even if the odds are long to make it as a political career, the odds might be even longer to get a, a job in other sectors, including in the private sector or in formal, uh, formal government office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in that choice set, you know, the, the risks of politics may be worth may be worth it. And that's often what they're in it for. So I think that is really, it's not that they're not seeking it, but at the level of slum broker, it's really about getting that inclusion and moving up the ladder that that motivates them. Do you see these informal institutions as a really healthy phenomenon in Indian politics? Um, is this is this an example of how mm-hmm. democracy is supposed to work? Um, are these kinds of governance, governance mechanisms just a benign form of self-governance that Mm -hmm. comes from the bottom up that has legitimacy and fills the vacuum of the formal state so i think that they have come up sometimes to fulfill you know to um fill the vacuum that um the formal state has sometimes left in that I think the very fact that we see such competitive brokerage conditions has to do with the inherent informality of these settlements, which renders every single thing that you need has to be lobbied for um, and needs some form of mediation. And the fact that the Indian state, not just elected officials, but bureaucrats, uh, need to be pressured to deliver services uh, and therefore need people with political heft behind them is often what's driving the formation of these chains of brokers and the networks and political machines they're embedded within. But I think uh, it would be hard to say that this is uh, a kind of a benign outcome and maybe even a solution to a failing state. Recall that much of these brokerage activities target the state. So the brokers who are coming up are not self-providing these services. They're not getting uh, an informal system to self-provide these services. They're lobbying the state for them and often lobbying the state in a way that will prove discretionary. So there are certain slums that are going to benefit from this system. If you're a larger slum, you're more likely to to get uh, goods and services, and that's something that Adam shows in work that he's done before. Um, if you're a slum with more of these leaders, uh, leaders who are more powerful, you may be more likely to get things than others. So that means that they're, you know, like any everything else, that this might be uh, replicating systems of inequality within slum settlements, where certain slums rise to prominence and others, uh, others fall behind. And so... Um, when you uh, continue to have a system that's based on discretion, uh, that requires a certain amount of political leverage to get things done in a piecemeal and ad hoc way, rather than a systematic way that has a kind of urban policy heft and kind of widespread planning behind it, then you do leave yourself open to this. And so, of course, um, centralized planning and centralized urban planning in India has had its own pitfalls. But I think viewing this as purely a solution to the failings of a state is dangerous, A, because the state is still heavily involved in the center of the action for these lobbying networks. Uh, But secondly, because it papers over the real inequalities and and discretionary nature of the transactions that these brokerage networks are still enmeshed within. And so I think um, I would caution against thinking that it was a solution. I think it's best thought of as a way to understand how people are actively trying to shape the best outcomes they can get within a system that is characterized by a high level of dysfunction and sometimes venality. What does this kind of competitive local governance mean for Indian political development in the long term? So do you see Mm -hmm. political machines in the global south Mm -hmm. eventually declining maybe in the same way that they did in the U.S. in the early Mm -hmm. 20th century? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, I think 
right now, um, it's there are kind of two countervailing trends in Indian politics that are kind of rubbing up against one another. So on the one hand, you know, if you just stay in the world that Adam and I have stayed in, which is an intensely local one, we're really focusing at the level of the municipal ward and individual settlements, we're studying kind of hyper-local politics, which I think can be very valuable in some ways. But one of the things that it might do is kind of overstate the degree to which those local dynamics can shape uh, national political cultures or national political systems. And I think in the Indian case, while at the local level we're uncovering uh, a high degree, at least in the cities we study, a high degree of competitive local governance, uh, we're highlighting the fact that there's this competitive selection of slum leaders, that there's then competitive selection among parties, that there's not really uh, consolidated incumbency, that there is there are these truly um, uh, kind of competitive democratic processes. Uh, there are countervailing trends at the national level. So at the national level, we see a centralization of power within the national government, um, especially under uh, the BJP-ruled Modi government. There's been an incredible centralization of power, not just in Delhi, but within the prime minister's office. There's been an incredible um, increase in the expense of elections, uh, which really uh, has increasingly necessitated and constrained who can even run for office at higher levels. So you need to be uh, financially connected and have uh, considerable access to funds in order to uh, really be a viable national candidate. So the degree to which some of these bottom-up processes we're talking about, you know, could a slum leader actually run to be a member of parliament? I think there's a very clear ceiling they're going to hit against mm. because uh, there are, while they, you know, they may be able to penetrate local politics um, and kind of push up and have their voices heard at that very local level, mm -hmm. the higher level of politics, in some ways, we're seeing a consolidation of, um, of a political elite that is going to be hard to permeate. Mm -hmm. And so if we take those two trends um, in um, in conjunction with one another, and a, you know, a second uh, set of countervailing trends, we see this ethnic diversity leading to actually a decline in the salience of caste and these local competitive selection decisions. But then we have a party that's openly um, espoused um, Hindu nationalism, and it's governed by ruling ideology as one of uh, Hindu nationalism, a party I've studied extensively in my first book, um, that's come into office and um, that is promulgating a set of policies that are seen as key agenda items of a Hindu nationalist vision. So on the one hand, we have this kind of celebration of local ethnic diversity within settlements and what it's doing at the local level. And yet at the national level, somebody could look and say, well, there's a completely countervailing trend of one where Muslims are feeling um, increasingly threatened and increasingly excluded from the halls of Indian politics and power. And there's a party with a kind of chauvinist nationalist vision that's uh, consolidating power at the national level. So I think, to me, your question really intersects with this idea of there are almost um, a misalignment between some of the local trends that we're observing and some of the trends in national and Indian politics that I think is going to put a ceiling on how far up the trends that Adam and I are documenting can actually travel. Mm -hmm. That said, it also creates little pockets of breathing air. So I think at local level, the fact that there's still so much competition... Um, allows for a certain level of oxygen within the local system that it can't be completely closed. For example, uh, somebody might be well think that, you know, the BJP's dominance at the national level should transfer all the way down. So maybe all the slum leaders now are just like rushing to try and ally themselves with the BJP. 
We don't see that. We see the Congress actually has a number of slum leaders retain their positions within the Congress. The split is quite even within our study cities. It's almost 50-50, not quite, about 60-40, but it's far from kind of BJP dominance at that local level. And this is despite the fact that the Congress has really made no headway in the national, in, in the kind of national picture over the last several years. So there are, you know, these countervailing trends that are kind of knocking off against each other at the local level and the national level. And that's where I kind of th see things standing now. Mm -hmm. Which one will kind of dominate the other as we go forward is a question I wish I could answer. But right now, things are so uncertain in India at so many different levels, I, I don't feel confident answering. Mm -hmm. you, you see these different layers of governance that just kind of have one formal, one informal, and mm -hmm. just the informal one is not kind of mapping onto the formal. It doesn't just kind of trans transform into formal politics. Yeah, or if it does, it's only going to be at a very localized level. And the the, the kind of importance of money, um, politics, as well as an increasing nationalization of formal politics um, at the highest levels is going to put a lid on how far up these bottom-up forces can actually penetrate the political system. And mm -hmm. I think right now that, that ceiling is very much at the kind of local mm -hmm. ward level, which is important for a lot of slum residents that's the level at which most of their lives are, are lived. Mm -hmm. uh, but it means that, you know, its implications for the wider world of Indian politics, I think we have to be more circumspect mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Tying that into questions of economic development in India, mm -hmm. uh, as these slums kind of develop economically over time and and residents having gotten used to a sort of um, deliberative process mm -hmm. of choosing their leaders, of being somewhat involved and, and getting public service mm -hmm. provision. And do you think that that sort of trend in the mm -hmm. long term, given mm -hmm. that cities are going to grow and people are going to become richer, there's going to be more of a pressure on the formal system of governance uh, to kind of break into it. And it, yeah, no. To, it's, so yeah. one one area in which your question has been something that that we've been thinking about is you know so what are the implications of this for urban policy and urban governance and something that 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 just the center is interested in as well. And I think one place that we think our, our work may have implications is. Uh, the kind of profusion and interest in so-called community-driven development programs. So a lot of urban governance has been taking seriously the idea of community-driven development. Um, but when actually trying to implement that, um, the vision of what that looks like has been, I think, compromised in several ways. So um, the Indian government itself has issued policy reports where it's highlighted the need for community-driven development, but in the same breath said that often uh, the local leaders within urban slums um, lack legitimacy or are coercive figures. And so many community-driven development schemes in India have often looked to bypass these local leaders, usually by kind of appointing and installing their own leaders, you know, dubbing somebody the point person for a social program. And now by virtue of that, you become a local leader. Um, and often those are figures who lack, you know, everyday legitimacy and have not had a history of kind of working within communities. And I think one place we are trying to push back is say not to assume that local slum leaders are these corrupt thugs who have to be worked around, that there might be some utility to including them within these community-driven development processes, including in the cities we study, Jaipur and Bhopal, where they have not been. Mm -hmm. And so I think, or largely have not been. And so I think that's one area where thinking about models of urban development and where can the systems that we're uncovering potentially be used. Mm. Um, and again, it's not to suggest that these are romanticized figures who don't have their own interests, but often their own interests are in enabling better outcomes for their settlements. Mm. Um, doing so might get them an even more senior position within the political mm. party they want. And mm. so they have incentives that may align mm. with community-driven development. And mm. so we shouldn't be necessarily suspicious of that. Mm. And I think that's one area where we see um, a potential uh, implication of our work maybe mm -hmm. being helpful. Mm -hmm.
obviously you've been studying this as kind of a one country example. Mm -hmm. um, there is often the, qu the question in social science about yeah. external generalizability. Yeah. So what are you finding? What lessons are pertinent for uh, urbanization, the study of political mm -hmm. development around the world? Um, yeah, so let me begin with a further caveat before I talk about generalizability, which is I think we're also very cautious about saying, even within India itself, generalizing is fraught. And we are studying two cities um, in North India. We pick those two cities as what, in Indian terms, by Indian standards, mid-size, meaning million-plus cities, um, rather than more studied megacities like Delhi and Bombay. There are 50 such cities in India. So I, I think it's important to study that tier of cities, but those 50 cities vary greatly. And so it's possible that the patterns we uncover may not be true in other cities. There's been recent work that's documented, for example, tremendous religious segregation in uh, the city of Ahmedabad in Gujarat. Mm. Um, and so it may be that if we did an equivalent exercise there, we might find uh, more... Uh, ethnic segregation than we find in Jaipur and Bhopal. Other cities are not ruled by just the Congress and BJP as our cities are in India. There are regional parties, caste-based parties, language-based parties that hold sway. So I want to begin with that caveat and say much more is needed even for filling out the picture within India. That mm -hmm. said, I think there are certain patterns that we talk about here that um, should lend themselves to at least uh, being asked in other contexts. So the first is not to presume um, outcomes about slum settlements. So slums house now nearly a billion people worldwide. They remain severely understudied, especially in quantitative work. So for example, um, the Peronist Party machine, this famous example from Argentina, which inspired much of the work on clientelism, um, is often based on the study of the party in its strongholds in Buenos Aires. And there's an invocation of the urban poor, and certainly urban poor neighborhoods are studied in studies of Peronism. But slums are systematically either undersampled or completely led out of those studies by the admissions of Argentine scholars themselves. Um, and the same is true for sub-Saharan Africa. We often have survey work in one or two famous slums, the slum of Kaibira in Nairobi, for example. But we have very little systematic work that tries to do this mapping out of informal settlements, in part because it's hard. These are informal settlements. We often don't have official lists of them constructing survey samples. But I think the first point is that when we did this exercise, even in two Indian cities, we immediately started uncovering realities that differed from the portrayals. So just the fact that we haven't studied these spaces hasn't stopped social scientists from making a lot of proclamations about what life in the slum looks like. And I think our first goal would be, let's study it before we make that claim. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we think is most likely, is, is likely to be found is the combination of poverty and informality that characterize Indian slums is true of slums in most parts of the world. And it is that combination that often drives and in migration from different parts of the country, again, common to many slum settlements, it's those patterns that often drive the competitive brokerage environments that we're witnessing. And uh, we've seen, you know, anecdotal and some qualitative evidence that the figures of slum leaders that we document are present in slums in other parts of the world. The paths to which they come into leadership may differ from the Indian context, but the fact that they're happening in these spaces that have remained unmapped is the place that we should, I think, begin. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if we do so, we're likely to see that uh, politics in these spaces is far more agential, even if circumscribed, even if limited by larger forces in the city, than we often give it credit for. I think if I had a prediction about which of our findings is most likely to travel, I think that would be the one. What are the future uh, paths in your research program? Um, so I think, uh, you know, hopefully finishing up this book. So we've been mm -hmm. working on this book for the last five years. Um, and I think hopefully in uh, we're in social science time, hoping to submit it <laughs> soon, which I don't know how many months that means, but um, hopefully sometime this year. Mm -hmm. um, and a place that our interest has um, 
shifted to in the future is actually looking at even smaller cities. So a lot of urbanization, what we call small scale urbanization um, is happening in India. So a lot of where um, uh, urban areas are growing is actually even smaller cities in Jaipur, Bhopal. So really places that are um, tiny towns that are kind of growing in an even more haphazard and unplanned manner than um, the cities we've studied so far. The Because of the nature of those cities, because they are kind of even more obscure, they're even less studied. And one of the things that we've started uh, asking ourselves is, you know, how are these cities dealing with even setting up for the first time kind of municipal services, attempting to tax their populations, attempting to make a priority list of what infrastructure to build? Um, and are they even able to do the the, the minimal things for which the, the governments are required? And um, you know, these are really, in some ways, the urban frontier um, of um, of Indian cities right now. And in many parts of the world, actually, such small-scale urbanization is a big part of uh, the urban story. But the attention to kind of capital cities and big cities has often crowded out our understanding of what's happening in these mm-hmm. spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a, a direction in which we hope to move mm-hmm. in the future. Uh, just to ask you one final question sure. on a more methodological point, you've been doing a lot of different kinds of methods uh, from ethnography to experimentation Mm -hmm. and survey work. Um, Talk a little bit about some of the sort of challenges of doing that kind of ethnographic work. Um, Mm -hmm. What are the pros and cons? What have have you been finding Mm -hmm. kind of most rewarding? What's most difficult? Mm -hmm. Um, Any advice for for Mm -hmm. young scholars kind of going into the field and and trying to do this kind of work? Yeah, so I think, you know, one... um, one maybe thing that would be helpful for for young scholars is, you know, often um, as a student, your comparative advantage is time, not money. And one of the things that time can help you get is a really finely textured sense of a place on which to design your questions, even if you end up doing quantitative work. And I think something both Adam and I have done in our own work and something that we brought us together and, and we continue to do is not to kind of immediately start, um, you know, conducting surveys and uh, building up quantitative data exercises before we have a really keen sense of the lived reality of the spaces we're working in. And so I think our ethnography has been helpful, not just when we've conducted ethnographic fieldwork both together and apart. And one of the things that it's been crucial for is not just generating its own set of insights, uh, but for helping us inform the design and implementation of our quantitative data collection, whether it's been surveys, whether it's been the design of survey choice experiments, in in our case, I really can't even imagine how we would have done it, how we would have phrased the questions in a way that was respectful and intelligible for our respondents, had we not, down to the phrases that we used, had we not done prior ethnographic work. And I think that is sometimes a point that is lost um, among scholars who... Uh, who see the potential for kind of the quantitative work that we, that we're doing, uh, but maybe miss the significance of the qualitative work that preceded it, and really was the foundation for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that students, even if you don't have a large research budget, um, if you have enough to have a plane ticket to go out to a place like India, you can you can do and understand a lot from a little, and it'll mm-hmm. also help you make sense of the findings you come on uh, you you come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps you interpret them, etc. And so we you know. Um, I think, really uh, hang our hat on the importance of that fieldwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and we return to those settlements every year, um, both together and apart. And I think, uh, you know, keeping a lived experience going of those places and, mm-hmm. and keeping in touch with people, understanding how things are evolving, even as we're writing this work, mm-hmm. has been really important for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. I really look forward to reading this book. It sounds like a, a really wonderful project. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us today. Yeah, thank you, Irina. Thank you for having me.
to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Governance Podcast with Tarek Thatchell. To learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast. Thank you.